Hey, Forge family. Last week, I urged you all to pull up the four elements of 2 Corinthians 3, verses 12 to 18, to hold up in front of ourselves. They were boldness of speech, no veils and no hard hearts, freedom, and ongoing transformation. These hallmarks of the new covenant ministry go out of their way to confirm that we are all ministers to the gospel of the risen Christ. We all are made adequate in the power of God. If those things are not true for us, then we must stop and return to where we last had an encounter with the Lord, where he last asked us for obedience, where he called us to serve him. If there's a blockage, it is there to be found. Confessed, corrected, and then forward transformations begin again. Let's pray. Lord, we are on a journey as your servants. We're not in perfect step with you yet, but our hearts press in and long for your presence. Holy Spirit, clearly point out where we are to put our feet down, where we are to trust and obey. We want to say loudly, yes, Lord. So turn in 2 Corinthians to uh, our next text, which is chapter 4, verse 1. There should not be a chapter break here, for the flow of the epistle just continues. This is just a, a choice that was made by a bunch of editors who tried to, you know, divide it into chunks, and they, they missed it here. Okay? So chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we've received mercy, we do not lose heart. Paul is casting back a chapter and a half to remind his readers of the ministry that he, the Corinthians, and we have received. It is a startling list. God always leads us in his triumph in, the, in Christ. We are those who display the knowledge of Christ through us in every place. We release the fragrance of life unto life for those who are being saved. We release the odor of death unto death for those who are choosing to reject Christ. We are not hucksters, peddlers of the word of God. We minister from purity as from God in the sight of God. Our hearts have been inscribed by Holy Spirit for they are hearts of flesh, not stone. We are made adequate in Christ by God for all things. Holy Spirit gives us life and glory. The ministry of righteousness has worked its wonders in us, and its glory will not fade away. We use great boldness of speech. We have had any veils removed by Christ, and our hearts are soft and teachable. We have received liberty in Holy Spirit. We behold as in a mirror the ongoing transformation into Christ-likeness. Now that is an amazing list. And there's more. Paul says, since we have received this ministry, we do not lose heart. When we're pressed hard from spiritual warfare and circumstances, we do not lose courage. We choose not to be discouraged. So what does Paul do when he's oppressed? He zooms out, finds his place in the triumph march of Christ, gains perspective, and rejoices. 
When we are so pressured, we too must leap up, seek the presence of God, lift our countenances even in times of tears and fears. This will take this will take encouragement. I'll say it again. This will take encouragement. This is not a, just a whoop, boom, got it. This is practiced, okay? This will take encouragement, practice, persistence, and faith. We do not lose heart. Many, many others in ministry may be discouraged. We are not. Paul then lays out some contrasts. Verse 2 says, But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So, Forge family, when ongoing transformation brings either present shameful stuff to the surface or memories from the past, we're to repent, turn, seek the face of Christ, and renounce those things that bring shame. I feel assured to say that we, as a fellowship, have each done work to deal with the past and present sins and shame. Now let me share with you the frost heave illustration. In Saskatchewan, on the northern border of the United States and southern Canada, uh, there's, a, there's a whole province of rich farmland, and its soils were left behind by a retreating glacier at the end of the Ice Age. Farmers, at the end of their growing season, start getting ready for winter. It, I mean, it goes from summer to winter in Saskatchewan. Okay? So they plow down any crop residue, put the equipment in heated barns, and they go to Florida for the winter. The ground freezes solid down several feet. When the farmer returns in the spring, he dares not run his plows or harrows through the fields until until he carefully takes a steel probe and walks and probes and probes the, the dirt, thrusting down into the surface to try and locate boulders that have been lifted by the action of the frost heave up through the glacial moraine in his fields. <clears throat> if you take a look around, there's rock walls all the way around those fields. And those boulders that have been surfaced, you may say, well, it wasn't there before. No. It was there, but it was down feet deep in the glacial moraine. And after the frost has come, it's been pushing those rocks up. And like I said, you know, you got rock walls all the way around those fields. They have to be lifted and removed. So we too have, have to deal with sin and shame that we know. What may be thrust up in our life is an awareness that we've never dealt with it may be some sin, it may have remained hidden, or some generational push that we've never addressed, both resulting in shame. So why did we not deal with those boulders of shame earlier in our walk with Christ? The Lord knew we were not ready, and he is the one who has picked the time and the season to cleanse our, quote, field, unquote, of what was previously invisible to us and others. Paul says, regardless when or how we discover sin and shame hidden in us, we repent, we renounce it, we lay it at the feet of Jesus, we receive forgiveness and begin to walk in new ways of obedience. 
Secondly, Paul says that since we've received the ministry of the new covenant, we do not we don't walk in crafty ways. We're to drop and leave any slick, deceitful, devious, sleight of hand stuff and move on in Christ. Now that includes subtly doing holy things in an unholy way. This may be subterfuge, Machiavellian, Machiavellian cunning, any other trickery. We willfully choose not to be manipulative word and idea crafters that spin scripture or obedience. Not long ago, it was common to hear television preachers offer some spiritual toy or tool in return for a large offering. That might have been, for example, a handkerchief that had been dipped into the River Jordan, then prayed over, packaged and sent on in return for a large donation. Paul Flat says, we don't do that. Third, Paul says that we are not those who adulterate Scripture. This is his second swipe at adding to and subtracting from the Word of God. We are not those who use Scripture as a tool to shape and manipulate. Rather, we submit to Scripture as a way to honor the Father and move on to maturity in Christ. The word Paul chooses here is most often used in Greek for mixing bad wine with cheap honey or adulterating gold with other base metals to make a profitable sale. Almost pure is not pure. And Holy Spirit knows and judges motives. The gospel must remain full strength, not watered down. Instead of cunning, craft, trickery, and adulteration, Paul and we too are to display the open statement of the truth. Openness and candor is another description of our message. Paul in 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Paul uses the word orthos for handling accurately. It means straight. Kent Hughes says of the scripture, get it straight, give it straight. Further, having presented ourselves to God with straight scripture in hand, we're to present ourselves to every man, woman, and child we encounter in spiritual, in, in spiritual fashion, in divine appointments, in a manner that appeals to them and to their conscience. And, and when we come into those conversations, we have the opportunity to say, now this is what the Word of God says. This is what God said about that subject. <clears throat> then Paul drops a bomb. Okay? <clears throat> Paul takes on the condition of those who reject the Word of the Gospel. And even if our Gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, <clears throat> that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul begins with those who do not see and who do not hear with any openness to Christ. It is because their hearts are veiled and they're blinded. These who are perishing have been blinded in their minds by the God of this world, or better translated, God of this age. This title for Satan appears only here in the New Testament. 
Satan claimed to rule over the world in his temptation of Jesus. Three times the Apostle John sets down wording by Holy Spirit of Jesus speaking about the prince of this world. Even in the Lord's Prayer, there's clear reference to the malign power of the evil one. Paul refers to the devil as the prince of the power of the air. In Ephesians, it is this God of this age that has already blinded the minds of those who are unpersuadable. Their course through life is set, and they have shut themselves away from Jesus Christ. The enemy delights in that. I've been seeing a physical therapist for work on my knee. She skillfully stretches, massages, exercises, and all the while, she just chats. She's just a chatterbox. A delight. She's really a sweet lady in the natural. She was raised in the church, went to church school, married outside the faith, and never looked back. She embraces much of what we hear in the culture. All manner of genders, all manner of culturally acceptable lifestyles, and values that defy the word of God. But she still wants to portray herself as spiritual. It is too soon to tell if our conversations have planted seed for the kingdom of God that have landed on good soil. For now, there's blindness and her heart is veiled. She represents in my life the vast number of individuals in America who've turned away from Jesus. Pray for her. Her name is Jen. This last phrase in verse 4 speaks of the fact that those blinded by the enemy are unable to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the express image of God. Colossians 1.15 states that Christ is the, quote, the image of the invisible God, unquote. Hebrews 1.3 says of Christ that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. It is not just the Jesus of 2,000 years ago that's being rejected. It is God the Father who laid out creation, history, mankind's role, and the goal of salvation in Christ. We all come from four to 500 generations, most of those predating Jesus' birth and life. Some individuals are descended from families who from the beginning have turned their hearts away. I recall sitting in my living room with a woman named Lee, who in a burst of revelation insight and tears stated she was the first ever from her genetic line to cling to Jesus. That is darkness indeed as the God of this age keeps succeeding generations turned away from the glory of God. Someone said to Sir Isaac Newton, Sir Isaac, I do not understand. You seem to be able to believe the Bible like a little child. I've tried, but I cannot. So many of the statements mean nothing to me. I cannot believe. I cannot understand. Sir Isaac responded, Sometimes I come into my study, and in my absent-mindedness I attempt to light my candle when the extinguisher is over it, and I fumble about trying to light it and cannot. But when I remove the extinguisher, then I'm able to light the candle. I'm afraid the extinguisher in your case is the love of your sins. It is deliberate unbelief that is in you. Turn to God in repentance. Be prepared to let the Spirit of God reveal His truth to you 
and it will be his joy to show the glory of the grace of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul started with, quote, we do not lose heart, unquote. That's like saying, we do not do that. Now, in verses 5 to 6, Paul says, instead, we do this. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as, our, as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Yes, there have been preachers who started well. Who rose to great prominence and then began to preach themselves. Or it may have happened sooner on their journey. <clears throat> and Paul says, not us. We display Jesus Christ as Lord. That is Jesus. You know, the Lord is salvation. That's what his name means in Hebrew. Who rose from death to attest to his claim of being the promised one, the Messiah, the Lord, the Christ. Paul continues to say that by choice, he and the apostolic team are bond slaves to the Corinthians. Now, a bond slave is in Greek is doulos. Okay? Yes, a slave, but one of choice. One who serves for life, for the best outcome for another. And Paul says it for Jesus' sake. For Jesus' Jesus's desires for the Corinthians. Paul leaps back to Genesis 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 3, to the statement of God to let there be light. Paul gives God credit for the light that has illumined the hearts of the Corinthians and us, giving us the experiential knowledge. Not a bunch of factoids, not a brief reference in Wikipedia but knowledge by experience of the glory of God because the gospel brings us face-to-face -face with Jesus. Kent Hughes says, There is no one beyond the creative and recreative power of God. He who spoke the worlds into existence and with a word birthed light and plants and birds and sea creatures and animals and us. This God can illumine us and transform us from glory to glory with a word. No one is beyond his love. No one is beyond his grace. And no one is beyond his creational power. Now, around us are those who look out. They, they, excuse me, they look like they're just out of reach. Whose lives smell of death unto death. Who, and who they really are blinded. But no one is beyond the reach of God's redemption efforts. John the Apostle wrote in his epistles that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Paul says, you know what? These people have set their course. And the Lord comes back and says, that wasn't my will. That's their choice. Pray that out over the undarkened ones in your lives. See if God will break through the power of the God of this age as he did with Saul of Tarsus. 
All right, Forge, in this passage, Paul proclaims a cure for discouragement in ministry and life. It is rooted in talking about and with Jesus, not about ourselves. Yes, life has hard patches, seeming intractable seasons, but as we keep zooming out and focusing on the face of Jesus, we endure, we shine, we give thanks, we reflect the glory of our Savior. Parents, I'm watching you do just that for your kids. That is a blessed thing. That same call of God applies to husbands and wives, each to serve the other for their best outcome. Who is it, outside of your families, that you're called to, to pray for, to serve at cost for their best outcome? Who is it, despite apparent blindness and veiled heart, that Holy Spirit brings to mind? Now, we're called to pray for those who rule over us. That'd be a good place to start. All right, let's pray. God, who spoke light into being, thank you for shining into our hearts and minds. We would cling to that light when discouragement comes. We would cling to that light when we are faced with darkened people we have to deal with. Thank you for lifting us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. May your message flow from our lips, your smile on our faces, your glory to be made visible to those who watch and listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Forch, I love you. God bless. I'll see you soon. Thank you.